The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Global markets under pressure as investors weigh the financial fallout of Russian invasions of Ukraine and the West's decision to cut Moscow off from the world financial markets. This as Ukrainian defenders hold off Russia's advance into key cities, including its capital, Leaders from both sides are expected to meet today in their first face-to-face since the attacks began. It's not just stocks. Volatility rocking the commodity space as well, with everything from palladium to oil to wheat to corn all surging in price. It's Monday, February 28, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan. Today, we begin this Monday morning with breaking news and U.S. equity futures pointing to sharper losses at the opening bell. If everything holds steady into the opening bell for regular cash equities trading, the Dow would open lower by roughly 440 points. The S&P 500 down by about 67 points and the Nasdaq down by nearly 200 at this stage. And by the way, with these implied opens, we are near the highs of the session in many parts of the futures market. On the Treasury side of things, we are seeing a return to safety, a flight to it, if you will. U.S. government bond prices have been uh, bid up in price and yields are actually falling right now. The benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield is currently just below 1.92 percent, one and a half percent on the nose for the two-year Treasury note yield. So again, prices rising for U.S. government debt and the perceived safety there and pushing yields lower. Meanwhile, energy prices are again volatile. We are seeing a move higher in some of those big benchmark prices. WTI crude, the U.S. benchmark, up about $4.5, 5% rise there, $96.23. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, up nearly $5 per barrel, $102.86 per barrel there, up about 5% as well. And by the way, natural gas prices, you can see they're up about 3% right now as well. Precious metals are, yes, catching a bit again. Gold and silver prices we are seeing higher. Fractionally, though, not as much as uh, oil futures are. COMEX gold futures right about $1,900 per ounce right now, up about three-quarters of 1%. Silver prices up about 1.5%, $24.38. Platinum and palladium prices. Palladium, by the way, up about 5%, $2,400.85 the last trade there. Cryptocurrencies, also a big focus right now. On the downturn, we are seeing in commodity prices elsewhere. We are seeing some moves higher in Bitcoin prices, 1% higher for Bitcoin. But generally speaking, a little bit more of a tepid response from other parts of the cryptocurrency sphere. Ether prices down about one half of 1%, 26.23 the last trade there. And Ripple prices down about one-tenth of 1%. All of this action is coming as global investors digest the slew of new sanctions put into place by the West on Russia, including cutting several of its biggest banks and lenders off from the global financial system, SWIFT. It's a messaging system. It's news that sent the Russian ruble 
down, you can see there, 21% versus the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. dollar is now up 21% in value versus the Russian ruble. A hundred, just about, Russian rubles is what it'll cost you to buy one U.S. dollar. By the way, earlier on, you can see it was closer to just before the over the last week here, closer to around 75 to 77 rubles. That was what it cost you to buy a dollar. Now, if you take a look at this, the Russian central bank is actually forcing some of these moves here. It's boosting its key interest rate from nine and a half percent to 20 percent in a bid to defend that currency. We have much more on that later on with Evercore founder and former deputy treasury secretary Roger Altman. Now, red arrows to start in Europe as well. You can see what's happening there. We have our own Juliana Tattlebaum live in London with the latest there. And it's very much outsized losses, especially in France and Germany right now. It certainly is, John. Good morning. We are seeing widespread selling take shape here in Europe this morning. Every major region is trading lower. We've got the French market down 2.8%, the Italian market down about 2.5%. Worth noting, we have bounced off the lows of the day. At one stage, the CAC 40 was off more than 3%. So a little bit of stabilization coming through, but clearly at significantly lower levels. We are seeing a little bit more resilience in the Swiss market, typically a more defensive part of the European market. That index down just about 7 tenths of a percent. FTSE 100 also faring a little bit better, down about 1.2%. Interestingly, we are seeing strong demand for defense stocks. So those stocks that will supply defense um, equipment, um, in particular, uh, getting a boost on the back of that about turn from Germany, pledging more military spending moving forward. I want to take you to the banking sector, though. This is the real focus of the losses we're seeing, heavy selling pressure in the European banks. We're dealing not only with the direct impact of these latest sanctions and how the European lenders will be affected, but also the second order impact of what all of this means for monetary policy. And if we are poised to see um, economic pressure, will we see the European Central Bank hold off on raising interest rates? And this morning we have seen money markets push back expectations of when that first rate hike will come from the European Central Bank. Obviously, higher rates, a positive for European banks, increases profitability. If that doesn't come for some time, that means that these European banks are looking a little bit less attractive. So heavy selling in European banks. But overall, Dom, it is a negative morning for European stocks. All right. Thank you very much, Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London with the latest there. Sticking with Europe and this morning's top story, the invasion of Ukraine now in its fifth day. Russian and Ukrainian officials will be meeting today for their first talks since the invasion began last Thursday. Now, this as Ukrainian troops continue to defend against a Russian offensive in the capital city of Kiev and then push back against an advance in the major city in the east of Kharkiv. Reports this morning also that Belarus, led by its pro-Putin president, Alexander Lukashenko, plans to send its own troops into Ukraine to support its Russian allies. Now, as fighting continues overseas, here at home, President Biden is set to hold a call with NATO leaders at 11.15 a.m. Eastern time later on today to discuss the latest developments. The U.N. General Assembly will hold an emergency meeting today as well to discuss the current state of the crisis. All of this... After Russian President Vladimir Putin yesterday took the unprecedented post-Cold War action of ordering his nuclear deterrent forces to be on high alert. Putin claiming the move was in response to a wave of sanctions by the West and NATO powers, making what he called so-called, quote-unquote, aggressive statements. The order means that Russia's nuclear weapons are prepared for increased readiness to launch. The White House saying the move by Putin was part of a wider pattern of unprovoked escalation and manufactured threats, quote unquote. 
For more on the fighting in Ukraine, let's bring in Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He is the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He is also a former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe and a former commander of the NATO Allied Land Command as well. Uh, General, thank you very much for, for, for being with us here. I just spoke a little bit about the current heightened tensions, and I used the word nuclear more than once. Is there any possibility, I mean, maybe slight, that this actually becomes a nuclear threat? John, thank you. Um, For sure, we're in a very dangerous period. Uh, President Putin has demonstrated that he is uh, going to do things that maybe defy normal Western rational thinking. Uh, But Russian doctrine, we've known for years, Russian doctrine uh, says that it's the state the existence of the state is at risk, then uh, we would consider, or Russia would consider the use of nuclear weapons. Now, that's still a wide range of things. And of course, it cost him nothing to threaten the use of nuclear weapons, but it would cost him everything if he employed nuclear weapons. I think he is, uh, but President Putin has miscalculated one more time uh, that how the West would react to these threats. And I think we're going to stick together Uh, And that, in my view, will reduce the risk of him using a nuclear weapon. Isn't this isn't this general, though, one of those situations where where the the whole idea, the theory behind this and NATO and the old Warsaw Pact was that if everybody knows they have these abilities, nobody ever uses them because it's the deterrent theory. Right. This idea that France and Germany and the UK and, and many other European powers can actually have nuclear weapons put on their border or their lands. And then that means that nobody really wants to use them because you, you, you don't want to risk it. Isn't that the, the scenario that's playing out right now? It's exactly it. Um, deterrence through the threat of nuclear force um, is designed to be like the ultimate leverage. And again, I think he has miscalculated. He thought that if he mentions or, that, or he puts his, his nuclear forces on a higher state of alert, that the uh, alliance would crack and that certain countries would immediately repel and back away and not take part in the sanctions, not not take part in um, uh, providing aid to Ukraine. Uh, and I think this is where we have to call his bluff. Now, this we're not talking about um, uh, a simple game here. This is obviously very dangerous. Uh, and yesterday's referendum in Belarus, where Belarus um, says that basically they now want to be a nuclear state and that they would welcome Russian nuclear weapons into Belarus, is not a good development. Um, But again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the way that you stand up to this is by sticking together. And I think the administration has done a very good job, along with the leadership of NATO, keeping everybody together. Now, now, General, one of the other aspects of this this war, if you will, is the is the non-military aspect of it. The sanctions being put in place. We've heard uh, there, there are there are widespread reports now of protesters protesting the war and Russian involvement in this. How much of that will serve as even an even more forceful kind of influence in this conflict as opposed to the military threat being posed by both sides? Well, this this is really important because uh, the president of the Russian Federation and the Russian leadership have up until now probably felt pretty confident that they had totally suppressed all of the uh, um, protests, the domestic troubles. Uh, Putin has spent the last two decades uh, protecting himself against a coup. And I'm not predicting a coup, but the fact that thousands of Russians in, in dozens of cities would come out knowing what would happen, that they would still come out and protest, 
this is not insignificant. And the fact that you're seeing large protests across all of Europe, to include in Germany and places like that, I think um, demonstrates that the, the world is finally waking up to who this guy is. Now, there's also um, another side, and, and conscience, conscious of uh, your audience this morning, um, we need to be thinking about what happens after this. I mean, I think, honestly, Russia's uh, logistical system is going to break down um, here within the next five to seven days. Uh, I don't think they can sustain what they're doing, especially if we um, continue to increase what we're providing. So we should be thinking about what happens next. And I think that the recovery of Ukraine is going to be a massive undertaking. Obviously, the, the infrastructure that has been targeted and destroyed by Russian forces, uh, reopening ports, uh, and doing that as quickly as possible is going to be important. Uh, Ukraine sure. is one of the largest exporters of agricultural product for the Middle East. We're going to have to get that going again. It's going to be a huge, huge undertaking for sure, but first steps first, right? Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Thanks for the privilege. Back to the markets now and the ripple effect as traders across the globe assess the impact of sanctions ordered by on Russia by world leaders. As we mentioned at the top here in the U.S., futures are pointing to steeper losses as we prepare to kick off a new trading week here. For more, let's bring in Annika Trion, the managing director of equities over at Kempen. Uh, Annika, I, I think uh, it's, it's interesting to, to think about the financial aspect of this when there's a human toll being taken. But as I, as I just mentioned with the general, it, it appears as though the sanctions are having more of an effect on Putin's support base in Russia than some of the military actions are. How exactly are markets handicapping all of this in real time? Yeah, I mean, it, it's indeed very challenging and sort of mentally confusing to rip apart what's happening from a human perspective and how should one consider that from a financial markets perspective. And I think we need to do two things to answer your question. We need to zoom out and remember what was the state of macroeconomics globally, the state of financial markets prior to this. And we also need to zoom out into previous geopolitical tension events going all the way back to you know, World War II and how have markets behaved. And perhaps starting with the latter, unfortunately, markets have learned to get accustomed to dealing with these sorts of tensions you do see it tends to be a knee-jerk effect in terms of equity risk premia, which does tend to dwindle down over three to six weeks after the initial, the initial hit. And markets do tend to go back to the macroeconomic environment that they were dealing with prior. So, you know, to, to deal with the first point that I had mentioned, let's zoom out. Where were we? I mean, let's remember, zooming all the way out, we had the shortest, steepest recession in history triggered by covid that was handled with a remarkable, you know, uncharted, unfathomable um, response, monetary and fiscally. That, was, that, would, uh, that led us into a reflation regime, which was growth acceleration, inflation acceleration. We were hoping to benefit from a Goldilocks regime afterwards, which is growth acceleration with an inflation deceleration. And what this war has, has pushed us over the edge into is into a more growth slowing regime where um, inflation continues to accelerate, very much triggered even more by this, whilst growth is decelerating. So, so that's the reason why we're hearing the word stagflation so much more in, in the financial universe right now. How likely is it that we have a true stagflationary shock, this idea of slowing growth with inflation? Yeah, so, well, there's two points to that, the growth and the inflation indeed. 
let's let's start off with the inflation. You know, many many pundits were wondering this extremely hawkish Fed are they going to change course because of what is going on? And quite frankly, you know, the Fed is the Fed is putting themselves out there. The labour market is strong enough. Financial conditions are not severe enough thus far for them to change their course in, in an, you know, with regards to being hawkish. And what this war has done is turbocharged the inflation problem. You know, just looking at a sort of moderate impact of what we're seeing so far, we think it's very realistic for oil prices to be up 20, 25 percent. It could even be double of that as things get more severe. So from an inflationary perspective, the Fed is very, very much busy with getting this under control. Sure. Whether it's a 50 bips, whether it's a 25 bips, they need to do that. And from a growth perspective, we should also remember, you know, the amazing tailwind that we get economically from global economies reopening. Right. Of course. Anika Trion, thank you very much for the market thoughts. We appreciate it. We're all watching what's happening macro for sure there. Thank you very much. When we come back on the show, could the top be in for crude oil prices? Why our next guest says prices could drift slightly lower over the next 12 months and take the other side of that, that trade there. Plus a humanitarian crisis on the border of Ukraine and Poland as thousands flee the fighting. Our own Steve Sedgwick is on the ground with a live report and a first-hand look at what it looks like with people flooding out of Ukraine. And later on, assessing the global fallout of the West's decision to isolate Russia from international financial markets. We have former Deputy Treasury Secretary Roger Altman. He's going to weigh in. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on some of the commodity prices right now as prices rise amid a growing list of sanctions against Russia. Brent crude, the world benchmark, has been hovering right around the $100 mark. You can see right there $103 on the nose, up about 5%. U.S. benchmark crude prices are currently $96.40, about 5% upside as well. Precious metals, safe havens, also seeing a bit of a bid here as well. You can see gold prices Right around a little over $1,900 an ounce, 1904 the last trade there, up about 1%. And silver prices up about 1.5%, $24.40 the last trade there. And lastly, taking a look at soft commodities, as commodities like wheat and corn and soybeans are on the rise as well, jumping sharply today, because Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of some of those, including wheat, which it is the largest exporter of. Wheat prices up about 5%, corn prices up 4%, and soybeans up nearly 3%. 
Let's bring in now Bart Malik, head of commodity strategy at TD Securities. Bart, thank you very much for being here with us. Let's talk about whether or not we could see this heightened volatility in prices to the upside last or has the top been put in? Uh, good morning. Well, certainly the price upside could increase here uh, and uh, very much depends on how aggressive these swift measures now uh, that we're talking about over the weekend are. If they are very, very compre- comprehensive, if they entail all the Russian banks, the central bank, uh, and deny financing of you know flows of metal if insurers uh, potentially are at risk from interacting with Russian commodities or uh, shippers, uh, this could still go uh, quite a lot higher from oil to natural gas uh, to metals. So right now, we just mentioned that Brent crude prices are 100 bucks. That, that's kind of where it was, right, during, during some of the crisis entering into what was, ha- what was happening with Ukraine and the invasion last week. If you take a look at oil prices right now, is there a reason why maybe they are even higher? We know that these financial sanctions, the swift ban from Russia does not include aspects for oil and gas. Is that meant there to to maybe reduce some of the price volatility when it comes to fossil fuels? Well, certainly that was uh, that was what happened uh, uh, last week uh, after the broad invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I think many people in the market believe that the sanctions would have been harsher. Uh, as we know now, they left out um, the oil sector and not all banks were included and oil dropped. Uh, now we're a little bit back again. Uh, you know, this is war. We don't know how far this escalates. It could very well be that after a time, uh, a more comprehensive set of <coughs> sanctions are imposed that do, in fact, uh, target oil uh, that do in fact target all the institutions and if the flows of oil uh, get impacted materially we could still get a significant upside from even these high levels now all right the uncertainty premium is there for sure bart Melick at td securities thank you very much we appreciate it Wait, on deck for the show outside of the global market turmoil a major humanitarian crisis is also in full swing on the border between ukraine and poland That is where we find our Steve Sedgwick. Steve. Yeah, Don, we're just at the main transit center for refugees crossing over that border from that arduous journey from Ukraine. We'll bring you the latest from Poland when we return on Worldwide Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A humanitarian crisis is in full swing on the 330-mile-long border between Ukraine and Poland as thousands flee what's now become a countrywide war zone. Our own Steve Sedgwick joins us now from Poland. Steve, good morning. 
Yeah, good morning to you, Dom. Uh, we spent the last 48 hours just checking out what's going on down here, and we went to the border yesterday, right on the busiest border crossing at Medica, uh, and quite frankly, what we saw there was absolutely heartbreaking. We're seeing uh, women and children crossing the border, taking ages to get over the border the other side, because even though they don't need visas to get into Poland from Ukraine, the fact of the matter is, it's just taking a long while just to check their papers uh, as they come through as well. It's only women and children because uh, there's a state of martial law in Ukraine uh, where President Zelensky has said, look, if you're between 18 and 60 and you're male, we want you to stay and fight as well. Uh, and the scale of the crisis is absolutely enormous. The numbers uh, were around about 140,000 refugees coming out of Ukraine uh, just in the last few days. Well, now we know as of lunchtime yesterday, uh, the UNHCR, which is the refugee agency, said the numbers were up to 368,000. Now, I spoke to Samantha Power, who uh, many of our viewers will know as the former uh, US ambassador to the UN. She's now the administrator for USAID, which is a huge humanitarian organization, part of the administration. It's a $27 billion budget administration. And she was saying that the scale of the crisis could be set to get a lot larger. The US has sent a DART team, a disaster response team, uh, to this region as well. And of course, as I said to viewers uh, on Friday, we also have uh, members of the Airborne uh, Division here from the 82nd and 101 uh, who are also here to uh, help out in the humanitarian situation. How many uh, refugees will there be? Nobody knows. The numbers being banded around are potentially absolutely enormous. We're talking between four and five million. Why are we making those kind of numbers? Well, because we know that from the frozen conflict in the Donbass over the last eight years, from the annexation of Crimea as well, that over a million refugees left Ukraine and ended up in places such as Poland. Poland's already a host to around about 1.3 million Ukrainians. But the numbers are enormous. And while the conflict goes on, Dom, I'm afraid to say uh, the numbers are going to still keep flowing over the border here to places such as where I am now. So, so Steve, I mean, it, it's, interesting, it, it, it's interesting you bring up Crimea because Crimea and the outflow there was, was less about the military conflict that's, that we're seeing play out in places like Kiev and, <laughs> and, and, and also yeah. Kharkiv as well. How long have you been speaking to some of the some of the, the, the travelers out of there, the, the, the people being displaced? How long do they expect to be outside of their homeland? How, how long do these yeah. women and children expect to be in Poland and, uh, and other surrounding countries? Oh, yeah, we speak to a lot of people. They want to go home. They are proud Ukrainians. They, they, they're an amazing people, I have to say, as well. They're a tough people as well. I'm talking about women with children, nay high, who have basically just been walking 20, 30 kilometers to get to the border, to get to safety as well. They want to go home to their country as well. A lot of them, yes, absolutely, want to go back as soon as possible, but it's absolutely impossible. I, I, I can give you some heartbreaking stories. There was one chap who's a migrant worker, actually. He wasn't even Ukrainian at all. He'd left the conflict in Libya, where he'd seen fighting for most of his life, to try and find a new life in Europe as well. He was just north of Kharkiv as well, and he's left now. Uh, and I spoke to him here. I said, where are you going? He's just got a rucksack on his back. I said, what are you going to do? He says, I fled conflict in Libya. I came to Ukraine. I fled conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I'm now here in Poland. I'm going to try Germany as well. So heartbreaking stories as well. I'll tell you one thing that's very interesting, though. As much as I'm seeing refugees going one way, I'm seeing enormous humanitarian efforts coming the other way, both official from the Polish government, from the EU, from the USAID I mentioned there, from other sources as well, a lot of volunteers coming through as well. Uh, and I'm also beginning to see uh, the first signs of that promised military support going the other way. On the motorway into the region we are now yesterday, uh, my camera crew and I, we passed over 60 military vehicles in a convoy heading what I thought looked towards the Ukraine border, and I've heard 
some reports since then that actually that was a huge supply of ammunition going to Ukraine as well. So very interesting to see whilst the refugees are going one way, it seems that the support that the EU and the world has promised looks like is beginning to go through into Ukraine. Much needed from those Ukrainians, of course. All right, thank you very much, Steve Sedgwick, with the latest there from the Polish-Ukraine border. We appreciate it. Stay safe, sir. Ahead on the show, breaking down the global financial implications of barring key Russian banks from the SWIFT messaging system and other stepped-up sanctions from the West. Evercore founder and former Deputy Treasury Secretary Roger Altman weighs in when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Investors gearing up for another tough trading day ahead as futures point to steeper losses amid continued fighting in Ukraine. Ukrainian armed forces continuing to hold off Russian troops, maintaining control of key cities as leaders from both sides begin talks on a possible end to the violence. All this as Western allies hit Vladimir Putin and Russia with a barrage of fresh sanctions and cut off some of the country's biggest lenders from the global SWIFT messaging system. It's Monday, February 28th, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan. Today, we begin this half hour with breaking news on the markets amid the U.S.-Russia-Ukraine crisis right now. You can see U.S. futures currently implied lower by 483 points for the Dow. The S&P implied lower by 71 and the Nasdaq down by roughly 200 some points at this stage. All of this is happening, of course, given the two day rally off the lows that we saw after the first day of the invasion on Thursday. Breaking news now live on your screen. We are showing you on the border of Ukraine and Belarus where talks between Russian and Ukrainian officials are set to begin just momentarily. People are just entering the room right now. We will continue to bring you updates with any major development coming from those talks. Again, Russian and Ukrainian officials holding face-to-face talks to try to see if they can end the violence. This is all happening on the border between Ukraine and Belarus. Along with the markets here, we continue to monitor the developments around the increasing sanctions on Russia and global economic fallout as a result. This morning, the Russian central bank rose its key interest rate from nine and a half percent to an unprecedented 20 percent in an attempt to fight an expected surge in not just inflation, but also shore up the plummeting value of the ruble and prevent a run on some of its biggest banks. The central bank says it also is banning foreign selling of certain Russian securities. Trading, by the way, on Moscow's major stock indexes is also suspended for the day. The bank's actions this morning follow a decision by the U.S. and Canada and the EU to freeze Russia's international currency reserves and cut off some of Russia's biggest lenders from the global SWIFT messaging system, which basically facilitates interbank transactions across international borders. And it's not just the sanctions pushing Russia to the fringes of global financial markets. Norway's $1.3 trillion oil fund, the sovereign wealth fund there, the world's biggest, by the way, sovereign wealth fund, says it will freeze investments in Russian assets and begin divesting from the country. UK Energy Group BP, for its part, says it will divest its 20-some percent stake in Russian state-owned oil company Rosneft, one it's held, by the way, since 2013. 
one of the most high-profile foreign investments in Russian oil and gas. In addition to targeting Russia's latest financial institutions, the U.S. is also heavily restricting companies critical to the Russian economy from raising money through the U.S. markets, including Gazprom, which is the world's largest natural gas company. Sofkomlov, the, 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 the largest maritime and freight shipping company, and Rostelecom, Rostelecom, Russia's largest communications operator, all of those are being targeted by some of these financial sanctions. For more on the Russian and global financial fallout from these moves and more, let's bring in Evercore founder and former Deputy Treasury Secretary Roger Altman. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Roger, for being here with us. Good morning, Don. These sanctions, I mean, we've spoken in the past about conflict over the years. How does this rate in, in terms of how you think the financial fallout will be? And do you think it's enough to pressure Putin into at least halting some of the violence and aggression? I don't think anyone knows the answer to the second question because Putin makes all the decisions in Russia and uh, whether he is susceptible to the pressures that these sanctions have unleashed, I think that's unknowable. I'm not even sure he knows. Having said that, this situation is unprecedented. This is the most powerful set of sanctions ever assembled against an individual nation and, and, and by far. And the sanctions in particular against the central bank are remarkable and very powerful. We don't have the precise data as to the division of the central bank's assets between non, between uh, euro-denominated securities and euros themselves and other, I'll call them sanctioned currencies. But probably about half of the central bank's assets are frozen, are now frozen. And uh, therefore, the, the $630 billion that is widely talked about in terms of their reserves, which is a pretty good number, is probably effectively half of that. So that um, calls into question their ability to support the ruble over the long term. Markets see that. And that's one of the reasons that the ruble is selling off. And then, of course, uh, we're seeing the beginnings of what may become bank runs uh, and the the the, the uh, sustainability, the survival of the Russian financial system is in serious question at this moment. Roger, ro- with, with that in mind, we're showing a chart right now of the U.S. dollar versus the Russian ruble. It's just below 100 Russian rubles per dollar. You know, before the crisis, it was closer to 50 to 70. That's how many Russian rubles it cost you to buy a dollar. We know that the Russian ruble is weak. Take us through, in your estimation, what you think the Russian economy could look like if this persists over, say, the next two to three months? Well, the Russian economy, to start with, Dom, is relatively small. The world's the 12th largest in the world. Uh, and it's frail. Uh, it's, an, uh, it's a natural resources-dominated economy that's really the center of it. Um, and these, uh, these sanctions are going, I think, to cripple the Russian economy. Uh, it will be hard to uh, the, the fall in the ruble means that, it, it, that every Russian uh, import will be at the moment 30 percent more expensive. It'll be hard to, for many to purchase their exports. Uh, and I, I think it's a it's a severe blow to the Russian economy, including that the, the uh, you, we're seeing long lines of individual Russians. Your heart goes out to them lined up to try to access ATMs 
apparently great fears we're reading about at least of whether uh, certain global credit cards will work for Russian citizens. And so I think the, the Russian economy is going to be severely damaged. And I think you're seeing it right now. So, so Roger, b- before we let you go, th- this is very much about these sanctions, not just about the oligarchs, because we talk about them often as being some of the direct kind of uh, victims of this whole thing. The, the Russian people, Main Street, if you will, in, in, in Russia and in, in, in parts of the other country, countries that are affected it, ancillarily by, by this, are, are going to turn public opinion right it, it, against some of this conflict. How long do you think that plays out? And is that the purpose of these sanctions? What's the runway like before you start to see people really, well, I think really it's going turn? To, I think it's going to be evident um, this very week how severely damaging these sanctions are. And, I, and by the way, I don't think sanctioning Putin or Lavrov is particularly significant. No one knows where their assets are. Uh, they may be indirectly owned by others. Who knows? Uh, and I don't think sanctioning the oligarchs is really the center of this either. It's it's about the Russian financial system. Uh, it, it's about the, uh, the the currency collapse or at least severe fall of the currency. Uh, and faced with those, it's just not possible for the Russian economy to do anything but fall back. Fall back a lot, I think. Now, we, we've also noticed, uh, again, markets-wise, they've been reacting very severely to this. The Russian default is something that people are talking about back in the day as as a possible kind of effect, as a precedent for this. We've seen the cost of Russian uh, insurance to take out, I guess, insurance against Russian default is also rising in price by a significant amount. How much of that then plays into the world financial markets in its isolation of Russia. How much if Russia can't even raise money, what, what can they do in, in the next five or 10 years without without any kind of real access? Well, I don't know about the next five or 10 years, because I think this is going to play out much quicker than that. But the um, the. Uh, uh, the the uh, the global risk uh, equation job has risen rapidly in recent days. Uh, in fact, the last 24 hours, anyone who has who, who, who is owed money by a Russian entity or has a claim on a Russian entity uh, has a difficult situation right now. And uh, if you're an investor, I think you want to be a little bit defensive because this could uh, this could be this is uncharted territory. All right, Roger Altman, an unprecedented situation for sure there. Thank you for for bringing your insights and all the history that goes along with it. We appreciate it, sir. Have a nice day. Coming up on the show, much more on the fighting in Ukraine, including cryptocurrencies and focus, the potential price impact on the digital assets as Russia tries to skirt intensifying economic sanctions. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were holding up through the early part of this weekend with Bitcoin approaching the 40,000 mark. But they took a dip yesterday, a big one, as the war in Ukraine intensified, returning to the same support line of around 37,000. Analysts say Bitcoin faced a week ago before Russia invaded Ukraine. Let's talk more about this with Dominic Dantes, 
market analyst over at Coindesk. Dominic, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Let, let, let's talk about whether or not this idea of cryptocurrencies being front and center for many traders is warranted, given the fact that we've seen such a huge move in some of the trading volumes around this as the conflict has intensified. Yeah, it's definitely been a lot of downside volume um, over the past few days. On Thursday, we saw a large uptick in volume, uh, which is a sign of capitulation. You know, if you have an uptick in volume on a low down move, uh, it pretty much signals that sellers are starting to get washed out. But we're not out of the woods yet. You know, as a technician, we look at the long-term momentum, and that has dipped negative. And uh, support range is around 30 to 35. You said 37. I would agree with that. But we've got some resistance around 40 to 43. Okay. But, uh, you know, this year it hasn't performed as a risk off asset. It's definitely been a risk um, on asset. And gold has outperformed over the year to date and uh, crypto has moved alongside equities. So the volatility has much been on the downside. So, so let's talk about the, the, the idea of sanctions hitting the Russian economy, even everyday Russians out there. We, we've mm-hmm. noticed and, and, and there's been and, and there's been reports out there that that ruble denominated Russian ruble denominated Bitcoin transactions are surging right now. What, what exactly does that tell you about the, the trading dynamic with regard to who's trafficking in this and, and what it says about the ruble versus Bitcoin? Yes, yeah, tough, tough to sell, tell the source of that. We just got the data out of Keiko. I saw that earlier. Uh, it just shows that there has been a sort of flight towards uh, cryptocurrencies in a way. Uh, but we talked to our Russian correspondents at Coindesk, and the situation on the ground is pretty much getting cash out. You know, have the ATMs that are not working or running out of cash. A lot of these folks don't have savings, so the access to crypto hasn't been as fluid as one would expect. Uh, so you probably think that these are larger individuals of sorts, but we then saw the tweet from Russia's uh, officials saying that, you know, they want to definitely block uh, access to the wallets uh, in coordination with the exchanges from Russians and ordinary citizens. Uh, so it's definitely a crazy situation on the ground, and we're watching that closely. How, how effectively could cryptocurrencies actually be in helping to facilitate transactions, helping to move financial value around, given the fact that we have sanctions in place. Now, sanctions, granted, that are maybe not directly targeting oil and gas, but many other aspects of the Russian economy. Yeah, you know, folks look at it as a a separate payment rail of sorts. It's just, you know, sort of moving value across the blockchain. um, And hopefully that will be recognized uh, by by the responding party. So it is sort of a separate network for payment that some folks have used, but for the most part, it is a store of value. So over time, you know, folks want to, you know, translate their dollars or rubles over to Bitcoin and hope that that will appreciate and be a source of payments going forward. Uh, That's what the expectation is. Uh, But definitely, you know, SWIFT and those existing networks that are more efficient and linked within the banking system is definitely priority. Um, And crypto, I think, is pretty much on the back burner for now. We're seeing those small spikes in volume, but Regulation is a, is a huge headwind, and we're watching that closely. All right, Dominic Dantes at Coindesk, thank you very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dom. Take care. On deck for the show, another turbulent trading day taking shape as fighting continues in Ukraine. Crossmark Global's Victoria Fernandez is standing by with what you need to do with your money amid the continued volatility. And during February, we're celebrating Black History Month and featuring some of our own CNBC contributors Here is Roger Ferguson with how we can close the racial wealth gap and income gap in America. I always have hoped that we'll make progress in changing the financial future of the black community. The entire future of America depends on it. 
There's a great deal of evidence that shows that if we close the racial wealth gap and income gap, all of America will be made better off. And we know how to do it through education, through financial literacy, and through products and services that take into consideration the needs of all Americans. All right, breaking news here. Live on your screen, what you're seeing right now, we are on the border of Ukraine and Belarus, where talks between Russian and Ukrainian officials have now begun. You can see there's some movement there. Again, this is all taking place on the Belarusian border. We will have you we will have you updated with any major developments as we see them here coming out. But again, these talks now to try to impose some kind of a ceasefire or some kind of an end to the violence are now taking shape. And we'll bring you more details, as we know, here on our side. Uh, Futures are suggesting more selling may be on tap for today. As you can see there, we are well off our session lows. The markets have largely managed to push past some of the headlines from the crisis in Ukraine. The Dow ending roughly flat last week, while the S&P 500 was up about eight-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq gained a little over a percent as well. Let's now bring in Victoria Fernandez, chief market strategist over at Crossmark Global Investments. Victoria, I guess the big question that I have is we had a massive, massive round of buying from the crisis lows that we saw on day one of the invasion of Ukraine on Thursday. What was behind it and was it justified? Yeah, so Dom, um, obviously when people are sitting there, they've got some cash on the sidelines. They know there's going to be volatility in the market. We've been talking about it all year, and we've been telling our clients that we need to use those days where you see pullbacks as opportunities to buy some of those names you've been wanting to buy and put them in your portfolio. So you look at a day like Thursday last week where you saw that come in. We saw the S&P go down to what right above 4,100, I think. Then that was an opportunity for people to go ahead and jump in. We saw those futures would be way down and then the cash market would open and throughout the course of the day the market would turn positive as people got in there and started buying. I don't know if we'll see that today. I think the talks that you just showed that are beginning may help boost the market a little bit on the open. We'll see what happens but I think that was a lot of the source of the volatility was the headlines on geopolitical issues but yet the opportunity to buy in the market. So so that buying on discount, that buying on sale, we saw, I mean, uh, various parts of the market, but most notably, many mega cap technology and media and discretionary companies, also some of those semiconductor names and technology, some of the small caps. What exactly then goes on the shopping list? Yeah, I think you have to look at a wide variety. I mean, you just named a bunch of different sectors that are available, and I think that's what you have to do. Look at the names on your shopping list you've wanted to own that you haven't been able to own, and then go after those names if those particular names are down. Because again, not everything goes down the same, but that's what we were doing. Look, we bought Cisco. We bought Apple. We went in and bought some of those tech names that have been down year to date, what, 7, 10, 12%. But at the same time, we went in and We've been a little bit overweight value as well. We like that play. We want to continue to stay right there. So we also bought some more cyclical names. We bought some Target. We bought Walgreens, CSX. So I think you have opportunities to do that. And obviously, financials and energy have been sectors we've liked all along. So we use this opportunity as well to add to those names, Bank of America, ConocoPhillips. I think you can kind of go across the board and find those names that have had the pullbacks and start building those positions. And before we let you go, Victoria, what do you stay away from in this kind of environment? 
Well, I think you need to be careful of those extreme volatile names that really are trading purely on headlines. You want to make sure you get names that have that longer term aspect to them. We are longer term investors. Don't get caught in a whipsaw moment um, of names that are doing just quick turnarounds. All right. Victoria Fernandez across my global. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We have futures right now implying an open for the Dow. That's roughly 395 points to the downside. The S&P down by 59 and the Nasdaq off its lows, well off its lows, down by 182. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.